1: The lure of the ice is a strange and powerful thing. American explorer Robert Perry. Explorers call it the Great White Silence, the most remote and unforgiving place on Earth, Antarctica. It's a desert of ice and wind, too harsh humans to inhabit permanently. The southern ocean that girdles it has some of the roughest, coldest waters on the planet. Bad weather is the norm. Low pressure systems rip across the ocean like runaway freight trains with no land to get in the way. Eighty mile an hour winds whip up mountainous seas 50 feet high. Even today, ten days sailing from the nearest port in Argentina or South Africa means ten days from rescue. But Antarctica is breathtaking. Its landscape is dominated by majestic ice cliffs that rise dramatically hundreds of feet out of the sea. Beyond the pack ice, entire mountain ranges are buried under snow. And for the few that are visible, only the very tops break the surface. Extraordinary wildlife thrives on land and sea. Antarctica is at once... Splendorous, mystifying, and deadly. At the turn of the 20th century, European explorers were desperate to conquer this magnificent continent, including the blue-eyed... Irish-born Ernest Shackleton. The expedition leader, Sir Ernest Shackleton, is an ambitious 40-year-old anglo irish Anybody who ever met him saw that this was someone who was going to get on with people. Or Shackleton, as I say, he was a human being capable of beating misery. He had a huge amount of energy. He was full of enterprise. He was very good natured. He is known for his way of drawing men to him and for his ability to get out of tight situations. In late 1914, the charismatic, brilliant, controversial explorer Ernest Shackleton led 27 men on a voyage to cross the Antarctic from coast to coast via the South Pole. What he'd hoped would be his triumph turned into a two-year nightmare of hardship and catastrophe when their vessel, the Endurance, was crushed in the Weddell Sea pack ice and sunk. Stranded with no ship, no contact with the outside world and limited supplies, it would be up to the men to find their own way out of Antarctica. As you listen to this, me and Team History Hit are on our way down to the Weddell Sea, joining the expedition mounted by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust to the place where we believe the endurance lies on the seafloor. If we find it, it'll be the greatest underwater discovery since the Titanic. So get ready. Dan Snow's History Hit podcast is the exclusive place to follow in real time the search for the lost Endurance shipwreck in Antarctica. To kick off, we're bringing you a special three-part series that tells the incredible story of the Endurance expedition, of the too-often-overlooked legends like Captain Frank Worsley and explorer Tom Crean, and of course their heroic, flawed, fascinating leader, the man they called the boss, who vowed to bring every one of them back alive, whatever it took. I'm Dan Snow, and this is Endurance 22. Antarctica was first sighted in 1820, though who actually saw it first is up for debate. In the last week of January of that year, a Russian naval officer with the excellent name of Thaddeus von Bellingshausen reported seeing an ice shore of extreme height during a Russian expedition to the Antarctic. Around the same time, Irish Royal Navy officer Edward Brandfield reported seeing high mountains covered with snow during a British mapping expedition. Soon after, Scottish whaler James Weddell took his ships into the sea that now bears his name and a number of explorers circumnavigated the icy continent in the years that followed. But it was in 1899 when the first explorer, a Norwegian called Carsten Borchgrevink, with a British crew, spent the first winter on the Antarctic mainland. It was the first expedition in what would become known as the Heroic Age of Antarctic Exploration, an age that captured the imaginations of the public, the press, and one, Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Henry Shackleton was born into an Anglo-Irish family. His father Henry was born at the height of the Great Famine in 1847. He was 25 when he married Sophia Gavin. Together they had ten children, including Ernest, who was their second. He was born on the 15th of February 1874 in Kilkee the sweeping Wicklow Mountains in the distance. The family moved to England, where they settled in Sydenham in South London, when Ernest was 10. He was homeschooled until he was 11, and when he did make it to school, he was bullied for his Irish accent. He was a poor student and got into fights. 20 years later, when he was invited back to that school to present awards, he quipped that it was the closest he'd ever gotten to a prize. He often played truant and once convinced a gang of friends to go to the London docks to sign on as seafarers, convincing no-one of their age they were told to go back home. Meanwhile, at home, his father, Henry Shackleton, tried to pass on two things to his children, poetry and teetotalism. He made the kids sing solemn songs outside pubs about the evils of drink. Unsurprisingly, Ernest took to poetry more. In fact, he loved it. It said he could memorise it by the yard. His favourite was Browning's Prospice, a Latin word meaning to look forward. Fittingly, his favourite line is, I was ever a fighter, so one fight more. Decades later, when he was stranded in the Antarctic ice, facing a truly hopeless situation, he'd turned to the poetry he'd brought with him on board Endurance. In the end, most of his books in his cabin library were lost when Endurance finally went down, apart from a framed copy of Rudyard Kipling's If. He took that with him when he departed Endurance for the last time. Shackleton loved reading in general. The adventure he found in the pages set him on course to become one of the greatest explorers of the 20th century. As a boy, he was particularly obsessed with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne's epic novel that sees a marine biologist and his servant on a hunt for a mysterious sea monster, only to discover it is no monster but a highly advanced submarine captained by the elusive Nemo. The three companions go on to explore a vast and wondrous undersea world. Later in life Shackleton would refer to himself as Nemo. Enamoured with the ocean, a teenage Shackleton was desperate to leave home but the family couldn't afford to send him to the Britannia Naval College. Unsure if his son was serious or if this was just a boyish whim, Henry Shackleton sent him on a trial sea voyage with the Northwestern Shipping Company. He was 16. He loved it. And at Easter 1890, Ernest Shackleton left school and went to Liverpool to join the Horton Tower, a 1,600-tonne clipper. At the end of April, he left the port city for a 20,000-mile trip around Cape Horn to the Pacific. At this point, he'd never spent more than a week away from home. The journey was hell. He was horribly seasick and shocked by the swearing and drunkenness of the other sailors. Around Cape Horn, the clipper battled ferocious winds and spars crashed to the deck, injuring the crew. He was lucky to escape unscathed. After picking up nitrates, kind of fertiliser in Chile, the ship returned to England. A year and 40,000 miles later, he returned to Liverpool, hardened, experienced and a smoker. He enrolled full-time. He caught dysentery in South America. He endured blistering heat in India, nearly died in a storm in the Pacific Ocean on a voyage from Australia to Chile as rigging crashed to the deck. At the end of his apprenticeship, aged 20, Shackleton had golden brown hair, stood five foot ten with a barrel chest and radiated confidence. He took his exams, passed as second mate and joined a tramp steamer. He passed as first mate in 1896. A year later, on a visit to his sister, he met Emily Dorman and the pair fell in love and later married. Emily was instrumental in securing the funding Shackleton needed for his Antarctic expeditions, while also raising their three children alone most of the time. In his early 20s, Shackleton was inordinately ambitious. He was searching for greatness and reputation. It just so happened that polar exploration offered him the opportunity he craved. He got the chance when a naval officer, Robert Falcon Scott, was chosen to lead an expedition to Antarctica in 1901. A respected, gallant officer, restless, also desperate to expand his horizons, Scott led a crew, including Shackleton, down to the ends of the earth. Their vessel was the specially designed Discovery, built in Dundee, Scotland, and it's still on show there to this day. It was the moment Shackleton's life changed – A young Ernest made a huge impression on Scott's 1901 discovery expedition. Scott said of him, He was always brimful of enthusiasm and good fellowship. As they traversed the frozen landscape, they made extraordinary discoveries. Snow-free valleys, the longest river on the continent, the southernmost emperor penguin colony, and the Antarctic Plateau, where the South Pole is located. As a trailbreaker for later ventures, the Discovery Expedition was a landmark in the history of British Antarctic exploration. The use of sled dogs played an integral role in the success of a number of polar expeditions, and Scott was the first British explorer to have them, having taken a leaf out of Norwegian Borskrevink's book. They were imported from the frozen climates of the Arctic Circle and Siberia. As Sophie Roberts, author of The Lost Pianos of Siberia, describes...
0: If you think about it, Siberia in the Russian Far East is one of the coldest inhabited regions on the planet. So it was a very good place for those Antarctic explorers to go and source ideas around survival and also draft animals. And in Kamchatka, the Okhotsk region, Sakhalin, the lower Amor, which are all in that far eastern edge of Russia. Dogs were, um, right through the 19th and early 20th century, indispensable draft animals whenever they needed to go hunting, they would use dog teams whenever they needed firewood, water, any kind of connection across that otherwise roadless landscape, dog teams were the
1: solution. But while the dogs might have known what they were doing on the ice, both Scott and Shackleton had no idea. A year into the expedition, things took a turn for the worse. Though the party had sled dogs, they weren't experienced in using them. The food brought for the dogs was incorrect and had spoiled by the time they arrived. When the dogs began to weaken through the rigours of the environment and lack of food, the party decided that rather than kill the dogs and consume the meat, they would press on with the dogs running behind, for they'd become too weak to pull the sledge. While Shackleton began to suffer from the effects of scurvy, all the men were enduring the hardship of a lack of food. Edward Wilson, the doctor, suffered from snow blindness at one point hauled his sledge blindfolded to ease the pain caused by the light. They turned back on December 31st, 1902. They were 480 miles from the South Pole. They travelled 300 miles further than anyone before them. It took them a month before they reached their base again, and as Scott put it, We are as near spent as three persons can be. Our ignorance is deplorable. The expedition continued, but Shackleton was a broken man. Scott sent him home on health grounds, mortified. He was desperate to get back onto the ice. The seeds of adventure and ambition had been sown. Six years passed, but the race to make it to the Pole was still very much on between European explorers. In 1908, Shackleton decided to make another attempt, this time with himself at the helm. He started desperately fundraising. He bought a cheap, knackered old ship called the Nimrod. He borrowed money made promises and somehow got preparations under way creditors nipping at his heels the entire time the whole thing was mired by poor coordination scott said of it shackleton is the least experienced of our travellers and he was never thorough in anything one has but to consider his subsequent history to see that he has stuck to nothing and you know better than i the continual schemes which he has fathered shackleton was an impatient and hopelessly unproductive character on dry land He struggled to come to terms with day-to-day routine and domestic responsibilities. His private life was often chaotic and messy as he limped from one hopeless commercial venture to another without ever finding the riches he so eagerly sought. Shackleton's only notable success in business was that he was a failure at virtually everything he tried. But Shackleton was also effervescent, charismatic, unstoppable. Napoleon said that a leader is a dealer in hope and Shackleton dealt it in spades. He maintained a childlike longing to search for the buried treasure. Men were drawn to him. He inspired them. The British diplomat Sir Shane Leslie later said of Shackleton that... I've never felt an audience be played like an organ by a man talking, except by Winston and Shackleton. On both
0: occasions, it hardly mattered what they said.
1: So no matter how chaotic, costly and flawed a project, he never had any trouble assembling a crew to take part. On August the 7th, 1907, the Nimrod set sail for the Antarctic with Shackleton in command. It was January the 14th, 1908, when the crew spotted their first iceberg. They anchored and disembarked onto the mainland, but instead of skis and dogs, they took ponies and even a newly invented motor car with them. It was chaos from the start. Ironically, the car kept overheating, breaking down and getting stuck in the snow. The ponies were almost equally ill-suited for the extreme conditions. They didn't fare well on the journey, and they were in poor condition when they arrived on the ice. One had been injured and had to be shot during the voyage. Another was shot on arrival. The temperature was below minus 20 degrees centigrade, and the men suffered from prolonged hypothermia. Rations were short, and the team soon began to starve. Two more ponies were killed, and the men resorted to eating the pony maze, They existed at the absolute limit. On January 9th, 1909, Ernest Shackleton, Frank Wilde, Eric Marshall and Jameson Adams battled blizzards to reach their furthest southern point, 97 miles from the pole. But Shackleton knew their time was running out. Their rations and their physical health deteriorating faster than they could move. A flag was planted, photos were taken, and they turned around to head for home. They made it back, partly by chewing on caffeine and cocaine tablets. Allays hunger and prolongs the power of endurance, the label read. Shackleton gave his last biscuit to Wilde. It was a gesture that won him his lifelong gratitude and loyalty. When they eventually arrived home in England, Shackleton said to his wife, I thought you'd rather have a live donkey than a dead lion. But to the public, Shackleton was no donkey. He'd set the record for the longest polar expedition to date, and was briefly one of the most famous people in Edwardian Britain. The king called it the greatest geographical event of his reign. This is Shackleton's account of the expedition in his own voice, captured on an Edison Amberol wax cylinder record that he recorded in New Zealand just a week after he re-entered civilization in 1909.
0: Point within 97 geographical miles of the South Pole, the only thing that stopped us from reaching the actual point was the lack of 50 pounds of food. I, Ernest Shackleton, have today, March the 30th, dictated this
1: record. It was 1911 before a flag was finally raised at the South Pole. It was red, white, and blue, but it wasn't British. At around 3pm on the 14th of December, explorer Roel Amundsen planted the Norwegian flag in the ice. He reached the South Pole before Captain Scott finally arrived on a simultaneous expedition 33 days later. Apsley Cherry Garrard, a member of Scott's last expedition, offered an especially insightful assessment of the great explorers of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. In the preface to his book The Worst Journey in the World, he wrote... For a joint scientific and geographical piece of organisation, give me Scott. For a winter journey, Wilson. For a dash to the pole and nothing else, Amundsen. And if I am in the devil of a hole and want to get out of it, give me Shackleton every time. Reading the news of Amundsen's triumph, back home Shackleton was miserable and growing restless. He took part in endless speaking engagements and when the public slowly lost interest, he worried he faced obscurity. The race for the Pole may have been won, but Shackleton believed there was one more great expedition to be made. This is an extract from his diary.
0: After the conquest of the South Pole by Amundsen, who, by a narrow margin of days only, was in advance of the British expedition under Scott, there remained but one great main object of Antarctic journeyings, the crossing of the South Polar continent from sea to sea.
1: Determined to walk where no man had walked before, Shackleton began to assemble a crew and a ship to embark on the mission of traversing the Antarctic continent from one side to the other. He'd found a ship called Polaris, built in a Norwegian shipyard, designed to offer luxury cruises into the Arctic for big game hunters and other thrill-seekers. This scheme fell through, and the boatyard was happy to offload the redundant ship. Shackleton offered to buy it for £11,600. He didn't actually have the money, so he asked if he could pay in instalments. He changed her name from Polaris to Endurance, after his family motto. Through Endurance, we conquer. Next, he assembled his crew.
0: The first result of this was a flood of applications from all classes of the community to join the adventure. I received nearly 5,000 applications, and out of these were picked 56 men.
1: His second in command was Frank Wilde, a man in whom Shackleton had unshakable faith. He was a 40-year-old triple Antarctic veteran who'd been on Shackleton's previous Nimrod expedition. Next was New Zealander Frank Worsley, who joined the crew as captain of the ship. He was an astonishingly intuitive sailor and a superb navigator. They were joined by Tom Crean, an Irish seaman described as hard-bitten, tough and determined. He'd been on the Discovery expedition with Scott and Shackleton. At this time, there was a huge appetite from the British public for images of Antarctica. So Frank Hurley, an adventurous photographer, was enlisted to capture the entire expedition. In total, there was a crew of 28 men on board Endurance, including Shackleton and one Stowaway, who became the ship's steward. They also took a cat called Mrs Chippy as a mascot. The expedition also advertised for men to join the Ross Sea Party, a 10-man shore crew responsible for laying down crucial supply deposits on the other side of Antarctica as the endurance explorers made their way across the continent. Ponies and the motor car had proved a spectacular failure on the ice during the 1908 Nimrod expedition. So for the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, as it was being called, Shackleton took a leaf out of Amundsen's book and decided to take sled dogs. Dogs were purchased from Canada. They were cross-bred from wolves and large, strong dogs such as collies, mastiffs and hounds. You're listening to Endurance 22, and the extraordinary story of the Endurance Expedition. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: Have you ever wondered if those pointy medieval shoes gave you bunions? Would you be friends with someone who had leprosy in the Middle Ages? And what on earth does that Bluetooth symbol on your phone have to do with the Vikings? I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, we find those answers for you, talking everything from saints to sacrifices, runes to relics, sex to science. Join me, Dr. Kat Jarman, and my co-host, Matt Lewis, for everything from berserkers to battles and runes to raids. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Stocked and manned, the endurance, a three-masted Barkantine sailed from Plymouth on the sixth of August, nineteen fourteen, and set course for Buenos Aires, Argentina, under Captain Frank Worsley's command. Meanwhile, Shackleton remained in Britain, desperately trying to finalise the expedition's organisation. Despite Britain's entry into the First World War just days before, the first Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, had given his personal approval for Shackleton to get underway. This was Endurance's first major voyage following its completion. Having been originally built for the ice, the crew did feel her hull was too rounded for the open ocean, and the trip across the Atlantic took more than two months. Not long after, Shackleton took a steamer to Buenos Aires and caught up with his expedition a few days after Endurance's arrival.
0: The voyage out to Buenos Aires was uneventful, and on October the 26th, we sailed from that port for South Georgia, the most southerly outpost of the British Empire. Here, for a month, we were engaged in final preparations. The last we heard of the war was when we left Buenos Aires. Then the Russian steamroller was advancing. According to many, the war would be over within six months. And so we left. Not without regret that we could not take our place there, but secure in the knowledge that we were taking part in a strenuous campaign for the credit of our country.
1: In South Georgia, the whalers told Shackleton that the Weddell Sea was full of ice. But for Shackleton, the prospect of returning to Britain with its creditors and domestic responsibilities was more terrifying than any conditions that he might face, and so he pressed on. On the 5th of December 1914, they left South Georgia behind them. As they went south, conditions initially were calm.
0: The northerly breeze had freshened during the night and had brought up a high following sea. The weather was hazy and we passed two bergs, several growlers and numerous lumps of ice. Staff and crew were settling down to the routine. Bird life was plentiful and we noticed cape pigeons, whale birds, terns, mollymawks, nellies, sooty and wandering albatrosses in the neighbourhood of the ship. I was greatly pleased with the dogs, which were tethered about the ship in the most comfortable positions we could find for them. They were in excellent condition, and I felt that the expedition had the right tractive power. They were big, sturdy animals, chosen for endurance and strength, and if they were as keen to pull our sledges as they were now to fight one another, all would be well. The men in charge of the dogs were doing their work enthusiastically, and the eagerness they showed to study the natures and habits of their charges gave promise of efficient handling and good work later on.
1: But as they drew closer to Antarctica and entered the Weddell Sea, things became more dangerous. Surrounded by one million square miles of densely packed ice, endurance threaded its way towards the Antarctic mainland.
0: Since entering the pack on December the 11th, We had come 480 miles through loose and close pack ice. We had pushed and fought the little ship through, and she had stood the test well, though the propeller had received some shrewd blows against the hard ice, and the vessel had been driven against the flow until she had fairly mounted up on it and slid back rolling heavily from side to side. The rolling had been more frequently caused by the operation of cracking through thickish young ice, where the crack had taken a sinuous course.
1: They manoeuvred through a jigsaw of ice on the 15th of January 1915 along the Antarctic coastline they found a natural bay into which a glacier ran. Captain Frank Worsley begged Shackleton to land there. It would be an excellent place to disembark and climb into the vast untouched Antarctic interior but Shackleton despite not even knowing if it was accessible or appropriate was determined to anchor in Vashel Bay 200 miles further south. He felt that they couldn't afford to add an extra 200 miles to their overland journey, so they sailed onwards. It would be a fatal mistake. On the night of the 18th of January 1915, the sea ice closed around Endurance. In the morning, it was clear that they were firmly lodged in a million square miles of ice. The nearest human being was in South Georgia, 1,200 miles away. Although none of them knew it at the time, this was the beginning of one of the most remarkable feats of survival in history. One that would test Shackleton and his men to the very limits of human endurance. Be sure to subscribe to Dan Snow's History Hit Podcast wherever you get your podcasts to get the next instalment of this epic story tomorrow. And don't forget to follow the link in the description of this podcast to go to History Hit TV, our digital history channel, where you can listen to all these podcasts without the ads and access hundreds of hours of history documentaries. Accessible anywhere in the world. Two weeks free if you sign up today. I'm Dan Snow. This episode was produced by Mariana de Forge and Shackleton's diary was read by Dan Aspel. You've been listening to Endurance 22 from History Hit. Goodbye.